Hello and welcome to this week's podcast, the second in a series of podcasts looking at life as it was on the islands off the west coast of Ireland. And this week the focus is on the county of Clare and Galway. And earlier this year, I packed my bags with my recording equipment and I cycled to County Clare, first stopping in Kilrush to meet Kitty and Margaret McNamara, who were both married to brothers and lived on Scattery Island. And I first asked them, had they a sense of being on a holy island? But those, those churches and blessed wells, we didn't know anything about them. We just part of the place. Uh, yeah. You just took them for granted. Like You didn't say like that was where St. Sinan was. Or, okay, or this is a holy island. Yes. Or, I no, no, it was just the island, it's just a way of life. Yeah. And they did have a hard life, didn't they, Kitty? They did have a hard life. They had a hard life. Yeah. They had a hard life there. They had a hard life trying to come out to the mainland in bad weather, getting food, trying to get food. And most of the people went to sea. And nearly someone from every house got drowned. Yes, I, I can imagine the, the difficulty in, in guiding ships up along the Shannon because... Navigating the Shannon wasn't easy. Yeah. Well, I remember them going on ships. I remember uh, Patty's brother passing for our house in the front as well. And he used to pass and they put him on a ship yeah. to navigate the ship up to Limerick. And the canna would be going up and down in the water. And then he, he would have to climb a rope ladder up yeah. the side of a big ship. Mm. And it was very hard. It was hard. I don't know how anyone didn't get drowned. The dark of the night kind of yeah. thing, you know. They'd have the flash lamps. We'd go maybe nine or ten days in winter time before we'd be able to get to town again, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What kind of a boat? The canals, the Korok. Korok. Yeah. Uh, and that was it? That was, that was it. it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And was it all rowing in, in your time? Oh, it was all rowing, it was, yeah. My father, when he got to Limerick, and with the ship, you know, take the pilot the ship up the Shannon kind of thing and get back and he'd come down to the back of the pier yeah. along where the bathing boxes are now and I'd see him there. If it was a dark kind of in the evening, he'd light a flare, you know. Yeah. And I'd row out for him. I was the last one on the island with my parents. Imagine, yes. We always found something to do, I suppose, you know, with yeah. the morning time we had to milk the cows. And again in the evening time, you know, and you go for a walk then in the evening after tea time with the next door, the Brennans, next door, the McMahons were a bit older, Patty and Bobby were older than us, you know, and go back to the island and back to Ardmanangan <laughs> and have the chat, you know. Spuds and cream was the staple diet. Okay. I yeah. used to hear my uncle saying it's spuds and cream. <laughs> For entertainment then, dancing. Yes. Uh, did, did they have dances in the house? They did, in the house. And they went, they had a, a, a gramophone. And they went and they collected uh, records from different houses. Whoever had a record, give it to them. Yeah. And they'd hold a house dance then. What kind of music? Mostly Irish music, funny enough. And they'd be playing, set, they'd be dancing sets. Yeah. Uh, was there another hall on the island? Was there... Did, Dances go on in the schoolhouse? They did. In summertime, yes, for the summer holidays, the six weeks or whatever yeah. should be gone. And we get the key from Kitsy now that we spoke a while ago. And yeah. uh, we get in there, kind of thing. I know we had a gramophone at home, the one with the big horn. He's now, he's yeah, master's voice. Yeah. That is the, 
I go to the school for the for the summer. Yeah. When somebody died on the island, uh, was there a wake? And... There was, yes, yes, yeah. And the priest. They were singing. Hmm? They were singing in Ireland. They bring in a barrel of porter, you know, a barrel of Guinness. I remember my grandmother dying. They bring in a barrel of Guinness, and the men in, of course, and they be drinking. They start singing. Yeah. And then they said it was old, old thing to do, yeah. to sing at a wake. When someone died, it was more of a celebration than being sorrowful. Yeah. Which it was. Yeah, celebration of the person's life. Yes, yes, yes. And if everyone would get together, all the island people would come, like, you know, to the yeah. funeral, they'd be at the house. Yeah. And it was more of a celebration than anything. An awful yeah. lot of them went away. Yeah. They went to Australia a lot. Yeah. I remember my uncle telling me, you'll get £10 if you, want, if you wanted to go to Australia. <laughs> and it was a lot of money that time, so I paid your fare and everything. Yeah. He was always sorry, he said he didn't go. Would would most of the islanders have emigrated to Australia? Or? There were a lot of them, a lot of them in England, England and Australia. You had two aunts that went to Australia. Australia yeah. yeah. Who were they? My mother's sisters. Yeah. Yeah. And what part of Australia? That's uh, interesting because one would would write home and say, "This is lovely. Come over here." <laughs> oh God, no, come on. <laughs> Uh, they were up in the Northern Territory, Brisbane. Yeah. Brisbane is where they were, yeah. When the time came to come off the island, what year was it? 1962. What do you remember about that day, you know, packing up and getting ready to come across? Yeah, but I'm <laughs> gone from me now, that's 62 years later. <laughs> no, sure, I suppose it was like any other day coming to town, you know. Was there a sense of excitement with the with the people leaving? I suppose. Or a sadness? Which... Not really, no, no. I think at that stage now I might be quite anxious to to uh, there because with when it came down to myself and my parents kind of thing and my uncle. Mm. It wasn't as easy as when, when the boys were there, you know, my brother. Yeah. So uh, So it was time to go. Time to go. That's right. The last woman that left was very lonely, Patty. Oh. Patty McMahon, she was the last woman. Patty, Patty. she was very lonely. She didn't want to leave the island. Patty I think, they were the only yeah, I think that they were sure. probably the only people that didn't want to leave. Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. She would have stayed forever if she could. When I was finished recording Kitty and Margaret McNamara, I found out that the Kilrush Community Development Limited were set up in the 1980s to spearhead the buying back of Scattery Island and the two main drivers involved were the late Canon Ryan and retired solicitor Michael Nolan. And to find out more about how they managed to buy Scattery Island, I called to Michael Nolan's office. Michael, lovely to be here with you in, in your office. Um, a retired solicitor now. That's right. Mm-hmm. Tell me, uh, well, first of all, tell me your connection with Scattery Island. My connection uh, with the island itself uh, is purely a commercial one uh, from the point of view that my grandfather, who was a cattle dealer and a farmer, uh, used to buy his cattle, a great deal of them, from the islanders. And uh, he always regarded the stock on Scattery as being high quality. He used to then swim them from the island. He'd swim them from Scattery across to Hog Island. I'm not quite sure of the distance, but uh, it's probably a half a mile perhaps. And then swim them from Hog Island onto the mainland, which is a very short distance, maybe 200 yards or so. But of course, currents were a problem. Who owned the island at the time? At the time, it was owned by a Belgian company, uh, uh, which was owned by the the company was owned by the Morkins family uh, from Antwerp. And and how did they acquire it? He, uh, he his family were uh, sailing around uh, the coast from Kerry, and uh, they came up uh, the the estuary and saw the island and just moored there and, and, and just walked around it and obviously were very impressed by it. And they just simply decided that they uh, would buy it. Now, at the time it was open, it was owned by a Colonel Wilson. He was uh, English, Anglo-Irish, I suppose, based in Mead. Yeah. And he had bought the island in, in bits and pieces from a lot of the islanders. Uh, so that by the time... Uh, the island was put up for sale. He sold it to the Belgians, Belgian company, and they, in turn, in the early 80s, were uh, advertising it for sale on the European market. They, they weren't they weren't marketing it here at all, for some strange reason. You had to put up uh, a, a reason why you wanted to, to get the island but, back. Yeah. What, were you, what did you say to him? Okay, uh, I, I had said to him um, beforehand that we'd be buying the island for, the, for, for, for Kilrush, for the West Clare uh, Parish, and that uh, the, both the diocese and the county were, 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 would be interested in acquiring it, and that we hoped to develop it for uh, two, two main areas, for tourism and also... For, to preserve its religious ethos. and uh, So that was really the, 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 the case we were putting up to him. Now, of course, I should also say that our, our company, at, at, the, at the time, the Kirosh Community Development, 
Our company had £400 in the bank, <laughs> no more. So while I was gone, and he told me this later, he started talking to him about, about religion. And what religion are you, Mr. Morkins, and all that sort of stuff. And Mr. Morkins turned out to be a very devout Catholic, yeah. with a sister, a nun, and a brother, a, a priest. And this was the, this was the oh. clinching uh, way for them to, to, to narrow the, the gap. And Canon Ryan began to tell him about uh, his own history, and you know that there would be that there would be masses said in in the island again, and that uh, you know things would be you know in a, in a Catholic ethos. And I mean, I always give the credit for clinching those negotiations to Father Ryan, Canon Ryan, because that's what actually got us together. So within, I came back and to find find them in deep discussion about religion. Anyway, um, make a long story short, uh, he came down to 100,000. And uh, we, we then said, well, you know, would you do it a little better? So um, he said, well, you know, I think that's really about, his, about yeah. it. And uh, I said to him, well, look, um, because if we did a quick deal, would he give us another 5,000 off it? And that we'd have the money for him in a month. And he was very impressed at that. I, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Anyway, I thought I thought we could do it because I mean, with the kind of comfort uh, that we had from the from the you know the OPW and, and the, the diocese in Chandeville, we reckoned yeah. that we could gather the money. So um, so he said, okay, ninety five thousand, uh, and I said, grand done, and we shook hands on it. After leaving Kilrush, I travelled up along the west coast of Clare to Kinvara, and there I met Richard Burke, who took me on a boat trip across to an island situated in the east side of Galway Bay. And I first asked Richard, as soon as we got on to the island, how this island, called Island Eddy, got its name. Nobody seems to know that. Really? Nobody seems to know, but I have a theory on it myself that it's got something to do with education. Edge. Oh, I see. Yeah. Now, I don't know whether that's right or not. Yeah. Nobody wants to agree with me, but I, I agree with myself. Okay, <laughs> but uh, for how many years? 86 years. You were born in 1935. 19... Over there. Across the water. Across there. the water in a place called Balinacorti. Balinacorti, yeah. Well, the village itself is called Caramore. But it's within the, the larger area of Balnacorte. So you've been looking across at this island all your life? All my life. Yeah. <laughs> and wondering at the people coming in, coming and going across to the harbour beside us. And all the changes you would have seen in those years? Well, I've seen the island totally vacated in my time. And, you know, when I was younger, I didn't realise it was going to happen. You'd expect it would continue forever like I suppose like a lot of things when you're young yeah especially especially when you're a child nothing's going to change everything is fixed <laughs> yeah but um gradually it, 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 it ground, wound down until there was only two left in it and they moved out to the mainland see there were 14 families originally well we'd say 150 years ago up to that and then it reduced down to seven I suppose through immigration and yeah the drownings I talked about, and then the land was redivided again into lots of seven. 
So you have seven fields in one area and seven fields in another, each owned by the seven, seven family member, families. You can see all right the way the, the, the houses were in a kind of a, a cluster or a circle. Yes. And it's all dry, dry stone walls then. Yes, some, some walls were made to protect the, the air from the, the high water, the high tides. Yeah. You know, the, the good solid wall out at the front, so that it slowed down the tide coming in. Yeah. It went into that house there now, because yeah. if you see how level the ground is out here. Yeah. Well, they'd have... Um, oh, were they attached? These they houses? were all attached houses, yeah. There'd be a room, the kitchen would be in the middle. And they'd use that for a lot of things, a lot of work, a lot of work going on there, repairing sails of boats and that during the winter time. And there'd be a room on the west hand side called a parlour, but it'd be a bedroom come parlour when the visitors would come. And then the other side there might be a double, two rooms, it'd be divided small rooms, or there might be even a little attic over that east end of it. A loft kind a of? A loft, yes, yes. So it's where the children would, would live. Yeah. And do you remember how they were furnished inside? The yeah, well, they the, were <laughs> the, the furniture was scarce. There'd be a few chairs and a table. Scrubbed that, up. Yes, that's all I saw. And and uh, no dresser or. Well, oh, yes, the dresser would be there. All had a dresser, and Mary now, Mary that we talked about earlier, she had a great set of delf on the dresser. Yeah. And uh, full full of delf. Yeah. Do you sense now, you know, how sheltered they were just there, how how quiet and peaceful it is? It is. In, isn't it? It was always that way, sure. There was nothing to disturb her, except the time they'd be threshing corn. Oh, yeah. Tell you know, me about that. How how would that go? Well, they had, um, there was a drum which was spun by horses with a, sh a shaft out of it, two shafts out of it, one each side and there'd be a horse attached to each side and that horses would walk around the circle to turn this drum which is a big gearbox and that would that was um, transferring the power through metal shafts with universal joints in them into the the little uh, drum drum box you know for to take the seed out of the corn i used to hear the sound of it at home across the water did you yes oh my goodness yeah with the grinding, yeah, of the, yeah, the, of the, the, the home, yeah, the home of the it. Home yes. Of it. yes. Wow. But later on, then they got a, a petrol engine to turn to turn the the small threshing drum. Yeah, yeah. So we're coming near the cemetery now. Now we'll go down this way first. That grave there, that's the one Pat and myself put a little surround on it, and he got a stone cut with the inscription on it. It, his his uh, young sister, who was six weeks old when she died, she was buried. She's buried there. She was so, born in 1926. Yes, I I see. So this, the stones you see around there would all be marking graves. Yeah, but there's no inscriptions on them except this one behind us here, which shows um, it's inscribed with a name that wasn't on the island. Whatever the the body came from, the spirit in it. Whether they don't know whether it washed up here or whether somebody that was in the island. That, um, oh, can you read the name on the Elijah Murphy? Yeah. So nobody knows. See, 
we wouldn't you forget you wouldn't think of asking the islanders at the time when when they were here about the different histories you know it's only afterwards you realize that you should have asked yeah so but nobody knows uh, where that body came from my cycling trip then took me back to Doolan where I met Michal Shannon who lived and farmed on the burn. He could look out towards the Iron Islands and would often meet the islanders when they came ashore. People over there, did they come to the mainland quite often or how? Oh, oh they did. They came to the mainland. They initiated now to be mostly connected with Clare. So they'd, they'd come here to do all their shopping a couple of times a year. And they were they were tough people, like they were with the Korok. They they bring a big supply of stuff, and they buy maybe buy a donkey or buy a, a two-year-old animal, two-year-old young heifer cow, and they bring them in the in the canvas Korok to the island. I see, I see. Yeah, and they had to be very well tied, and because the yeah. canvas is only a millimeter thick. Yeah. And so it, they had to be all the animal could do was breathe for a finish. And it was, of course, it was all rowing. Oh, it was rowing, yes, yes, with the, all with the sticks, and they were yeah. experts in the sea. Yeah. Uh, how far is it off the mainland? It'd be about eight miles off the mainland, eight miles yeah. to the Tinnishir. Yeah, and that's that's a fair journey to that's be a fair rowing journey, across. Rowing across, like we're carrying a cargo as well, like you know that have. Uh, well, they'd be loaded to capacity, like all kind of supplies that they needed. They, They'd have to get them from here and bring them in across. Yeah. Yeah, they were they were oh, yeah. they were always known as the Iron Men. Yeah. yeah. And of course Irish was their spoken language all the time. They just had fluent Irish. Do they look different? Well they were strong, they were big men and they looked very healthy, but a lot of them weren't healthy. They had a very you know uh, they'd have a salty diet with salty fish and all that kind of stuff and blood pressure I think was a big problem with the older generation there. I see. Yeah. They, they they look strong and, he- and they were healthy too because uh, to row a cork like against the wind and carry a, a load on it, well, they had to be strong and hardy. Yeah. To do with that, yeah. And the women on the island, were they... Uh, well, they made all their own clothes and, you know, they yeah. spun the wool and done the lot, yeah. 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 And, you know, kind of, because, you know, they weren't affected by any outside influences that you know life was simple really wasn't it on the island oh life was simple yes and they 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 were a kind of a community they lived they depended on one another they had to be that way to survive in the island like they had to help one another and they did that they were very very loyal to each other yeah they 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 were very nice people they were great people Many years ago, I visited Inishir Island to meet the Keneally family. They had lived on the island for many generations. And Tomás Keneally starts by telling me a story about his father and his fishing days way back in the 1920s and 30s. My father told me a story. He got up early in the, early in the morning and woke up the other two people that were fishing with him in a three-man cutter. And it would be an orderly wind. And they went out fairly early, around four or five o'clock in the morning. Because if they didn't get out early, he said, they wouldn't be able to leave the beach later on in the day with all the wind and the the wind blowing in from the north. Uh, 
They went out at the back of the islands in the Atlantic out here. And uh, it started blowing all right, but they didn't mind as long as they were out there. The Karak is safe enough, you know, if it's even in any wind, in any weather, it could be a safe little boat. And they got a lot of fish in the lines, more than they were able to carry in the Karak. The Karak carry around a ton weight on a bad day, 15, 16, 1700 weight. But instead of leaving the lines with the fish, they took the lines and they towed a load of, of fish behind the karach. They towed the fish and it got windier and windier and windier. And rowing against the wind with northerly wind and towing a load, a karach load of fish and the karach full of fish. It took them They'd be out for 24 hours Mike. and everybody had given up hopes of them being alive on such a wild day because they'd be the only karach out. Uh, the, the fish and the karach were dragging them out with the tide out into the Atl over to the Atlantic and with the turn of the tide they started to make a little headway and around four o'clock the following morning they landed at the back of the island because they wouldn't be able to go around to the front, down to the north side of the island because of the wind. I don't know how did they manage, but he, he told me, people tell you stories, you, if, you, if you don't know, if you aren't there yourself, you don't know if it's true or not. But he said one of the men in the Karach didn't t touch a bite to eat since he started out that morning at four o'clock until he landed the following morning at, f at three or four o'clock at the back of the island. And the next day they had to go out and tow that fish, to their two lo Karach loads of fish, to, to take down to the beach on the other side. Weren't they tough men? I mean, to be but, out, that, all, out all that length of time. They were, they were used to it. Yeah. They yep. were used to that. And they had the skill, I suppose. That's right, I had the skill. They knew more yep. about the tides, the currents, and everything, you know. And Tomás Keneally recalls here, when he was fishing back in the 1930s and 40s, for Ling. We were fishing around from 37 to 48. And uh, you bait the, 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 the hooks are, are smaller, lighter. And the lines are much lighter in the in the in those billets as we call them. Mm -hmm. But then, if you run out of of bait, and if there's a few bad days, rough days, you have to try to start again to get a fresh bait. And so what we used to do now and again was to go out, and if there was any fishing boat, any trawler, English trawler out there, mine sweepers they called them mm -hmm. at the time. And this was during the emergency when the war was going on. We were fishing at the time, and we'd be three days. The wind, the wind was too strong to go out fishing in the Karach, but one of the, an English trawler was out there by the lighthouse, and I was out sowing a garden of potatoes and watching that boat for three days, fishing there very close into the rocks. And I, I thought the water was getting deeper and deeper every day, and I wondered could it be fish. 
So then, on the third day, I said to the lads, we were fishing. We ran out of bait, that the weather was improving. Finally, I'd go out to the, to the trawler the next morning early and try and get a bait to bait our hooks. My yes. It was very close in. The boat was very close into the lighthouse, three or four miles. We used to fish maybe 10, 12, 15 miles out in the Atlantic, depending on where the fish, where you thought the fish, fishing was best. So we got up early in the morning. Maybe we didn't bother going to bed at all because you'll always have a chance of catching the boat early in the morning. They tow in their trawls with daybreak. And to be out there before they tow in the, the, the trawl, they're, they're, you have a good chance of getting some trash of fish for to bait the, the hooks. But we were out there before they started to tow in the trawl and all of a sudden we were just hanging around a good distance away from the boat so that we wouldn't be interfering with them in any way. So all of a sudden you'd have a petrol fish, fishing boat at the time. Uh, I think the boat was called the Helge. And all of a sudden the boat went out the sound between, uh, this boat came out the sound between Inishman and Kilronan. And uh, the skipper saw the boat and all of a sudden he started to steam out because he was caught inside the, the, the limits. He'd, he'd be fine oh, for yes. it. So, he started to steam out as fast as he could and we started rowing with him. And he didn't know what was happening and it was very hard to explain to him. How could you? And he, we started rowing out and followed him out, out nearly to the Blaskets, or to Carrigahault, within three or four miles of it. And he didn't know what to do because he thought we were too in charge of the of the, the waters around the island. <laughs> and then in the end he stopped and he said, what kind of a ship was that? We didn't see any ship, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> uh, I said to the other two lads, I'd go on board and explain to them what we wanted. And God, I was happy as could be then when they knew we were only fishermen watching, waiting, trying to get a bait for our lines. <laughs> yeah, and that was uh, a relief, wasn't it? Yes, <laughs> and the one that was very nice chap, he said, how far more were you going to follow us? Yeah. Oh, probably back to England. I said. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know, you know, whether yeah. it was... Whether it was true or not. Sure yeah. enough, so... Well, didn't we know you'd have to tow in your troll sometime, I said, anyway. And you were running into the land out of the other side, <laughs> declared, and you'd have to give up. <laughs> yeah. So he told us all the fish in the world was in near the lighthouse. We did set our lines where he told us in near the, the island, and the tower on the lighthouse. Yeah. And God, the following day, we had a load full of, of ling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, no other fish. No black pollock, no pollock, no nothing except ling, 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 ling. Yeah. Oh God, it was funny afterwards because we used to go to the fishing boats early too. If ever you ran out of bait, the only thing you had to do was to go to the English trawlers. There'd be no Spanish trawlers those days. Was there not? No, yeah, there wouldn't. Later on, yeah. they did come around. And during the war, there was very few of English or any boats at all. So if uh, if the trawlers were around there, you hadn't a chance of setting those, those long lines, you know. 
We've come to the end and I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's podcast, Life As It Was on the Islands Off the West Coast of Ireland. And all the full-length interviews will be available soon on irishlifeandlore.com. Now, for next week, something completely different. Maureen Hughes, let me introduce you to John Brady, uh, who is going to be our driver today. John is wonderful uh, to, to... I'd say you were. And <laughs> <laughs> before my father knew too. <laughs> Last week, I took... Maureen Hughes, who was born in 1914 on a drive around the Phoenix Park. And it was in a Model T car which came off the assembly line in Ford's factory in 1914. Well, I look forward to bringing you that podcast next week.